want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. I think when we look at all of the issues that are facing women at the moment and where the greatest opportunities lie around the world, I mean, this is you know, very much part of the sustainable development goals as well. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purpose with Alice Montague, Alice is the CEO of the Clear Foundation. It's an independent charitable foundation focused on the environment, oral health, youth and well-being, and women. The Clear Foundation is unique in that it's structured as a spend down, donating over $30 million over a finite period to make a positive and lasting difference as soon as possible. Alice, originally from the UK, has had an extensive career in the nonprofit sector. She shares that journey. And can I just ask all of you listening, if you haven't already, please hit follow on whatever platform you listen to, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the episode. Alice Montague, a very warm welcome to Purpose Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful. And you're the CEO of Claire Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So Claire Foundation was set up a couple of years ago by an incredible woman called Anna Stuck. She's an entrepreneur and investor, and the foundation is a proactive foundation, proactive funder. We're a spend-down foundation as well, so it's anticipated that the foundation will exist for approximately 10 years, and we're two years into that now. We have four strategic focus areas, amplifying opportunities for women, youth well-being, the environment, which is actually split between waste management and waste reduction and nature-based solutions to climate change and oral health. And these are all areas that Anna is particularly passionate about. She actually used to be a dentist many years ago. And so the foundation is trying to address some of the challenges that we have in those four areas. Wonderful. And I was really intrigued by the name. Yes. Because I couldn't see Claire in her name, um, the founder. (laughs) But yeah, tell us about how you arrived at Claire. Yeah, Claire was chosen by Anna. It's a name that appears in um, a number of the women in her family. And I think honours one of her family members that she was particularly close to. And in terms of this Ben Dow, which is a really fascinating model for charitable trust, so you've got a job for 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Have you had that conversation? I think it will. The idea is certainly that it will complete what it sets out to do in about 10 years time. Yes. 
yeah, so hopefully I'll have a job for another eight years. <laughs> <laughs> and a real focus on not just existing as an organization, because you might not exist in 10 years' time, but really focused on the impact that you'll have and the difference that you'll make to people's lives. Yeah, very much so. And it's quite an interesting one, I think, for us, because as a Spendan Foundation, we are particularly interested in the gnarly world, complex world of systems change, and thinking about how we can make a transformative difference within that, with a eight, you know, a spend down foundation that has got eight years left, you know, lots of those kind of transformative change happens over generations. So one thing that, one of the things that I'm focusing on now with my new team, most of whom have just started, is looking at with that time frame and the resources that we have, both financial and, of course, people, you know where that sweet spot is for us, where we can make the greatest change with those resources. Yeah, and no, I think that's a really good point around not putting money where money is already it already exists. So for example, if the government already covering an initiative, you want the Clear Foundation money to really make a difference and to work with others. And then I guess also measuring the difference you make as well, which will be which will be the challenging part of what you do. Yeah, definitely. And I think some areas will be easier than others. For example, we um, have been supporting the Mind the Gap campaign at the moment, which is encouraging the government to legislate so that companies publish their pay gaps because we have seen that when that happens in other countries the pay disparity between women and men is reduced and so you know that of course you know if and when that happens it's an easier one to measure and there'll be other ones which are more complex and I think as a funder when you're operating in this space, you know, there will be some things just be really difficult to measure, whether your intervention is the one that creates the change. You know, it's often many contributing factors, I think. And so you've got a small board, which is centred around the, the founder being the chair. And, and I guess a key part of your role is to understand the vision that sat there before you got there. And then build a team that will deliver on that mission. Like that's one of the challenges for you early on. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I've been in the role about six months now. And one of the first things I did was to you know, write some job descriptions and get recruiting. I think that we had realized that, you know, try and make extraordinary change within the time frame. We needed more people. We want to be a, or we are a high trust funder. We want to have good relationships with the organisations and people that we fund. And so to do that, we have got a team member per strategic focus area, which we hope will you know, enable them to have the time to develop a really good understanding of their area and build those good relationships. And the amazing people that we have recruited are all subject matter experts in those areas. So they already come with a really good understanding of their own space, be it, you know, the youth sector, oral health or or the environment. So we're going through the process now where they are, you know, really engaging with the world of philanthropy and thinking about systems change so that we can bring those worlds together, their technical knowledge and expertise you know, what best practice philanthropy looks like and then, you know, how you can fund in a um, strategic way 
and make a really big difference from a systems change perspective. So, you know, lots of amazing corridor at the moment about, you know, what it means to be a funder in Aotearoa and, you know, where we think the greatest opportunities lie. And focusing a bit on the project, so the one that you've already mentioned, Mind the Gap, which is kind of, from my view, it's activism. Like it's yeah. basically pointing or shining a light on a, on, a, on an issue. The pay gap in Aotearoa, New Zealand, $18 billion pay gap, which is um, which seems massive. There's been some really strong communication coming through in the last week or so around talking about women are now working for free in New yeah. Zealand. And, but it's not only women as well. It's, it's also minority ethnic groups as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and that pay gap is, is worse, of course. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. It is, you could call it activism, advocacy, campaigning. I think when we look at all of the issues that are facing women at the moment and where the greatest opportunities lie around the world, I mean, this is you know, very much part of the sustainable development goals as well. And so it is an area where, you know, we felt that, you know, we could potentially make some extraordinary change, legislative change that would go on to benefit you know, women for generations to come. So I think it's a great fit for us. Yeah, fantastic. And just changing tap for a bit and, and going back to your career and then sort of arriving at how, why they hired you and, and how you got the job. But <laughs> you're British, you lived in Australia, you now live in New Zealand or call New Zealand home. Yes. You're a reformed fundraiser? Yes. Would that be yes. Scrubby? Switch to the other side. <laughs> when you did, your, you did your degree and when you were looking at career options, what was Alice Montague thinking back then? Did you see yourself going down the for-purpose sector? Yeah, I mean, that was always, always very clear. I didn't know what I wanted to do. There was never one particular job that I had my inner heart set on. You know, I think careers advice back then, you know, 20 years ago or so was not great. I do hope that it has changed now. But, you know, there were never that many options discussed about what you could do. So I didn't really have an idea. I knew that I wanted to make a difference. I always knew that I wanted to contribute in some way, but I didn't really know what that might, would look like. And I think I fell into fundraising. I think a lot of people fall into fundraising. There are, I think, probably just a minority that have their, you know, their heart set on it from a young age. I think probably my first proper job was in Australia, I worked for the Cancer Council in New South Wales there and then went back to London and continued working in direct marketing for quite a long time. So I really enjoyed that. I really loved the combination of it being quite creative and also being able to really measure the impact that you're having. So it was something that I really enjoyed. And in terms of making your professional care career count and making a difference to the sort of people and planet, if you go back to your childhood where do you, where does that come from? Where did that was that how you were brought up? Like you know the way your parents would sort of situate the world, or yeah, I think so. I mean, there are a lot of very strong feminist women in my family who are all quite outspoken. So we would always have you know big debates about the state of the world when we were growing up around the dinner table. But I think I just had a real strong sense of social justice and wanting to contribute. And I remember Amnesty International came to my school when I was about 14 and it really struck a chord. 
And I, I think I just knew from that moment onwards that I needed to be involved in some way. And you know, I was always a bit of an activist. You know, at 17, I remember standing outside McDonald's in Norwich, handing out flyers to people about you know, the destruction of the rainforest. And so I've just very much felt that that was the place where I needed to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, my family, you know, they were, I think I remember my grandmother certainly doing a lot of volunteering. And every time we would stay with her during our, our school holidays, which we did quite a lot, we would always go with her to her arthritis care events and you know, help out as much as we possibly could. But I hadn't necessarily thought it was you know, a career. I didn't know how I was going to get into that. So falling into fundraising was, I think, quite a, you know, a, a good option for me. It fitted quite nicely with some of my skills. And I've seen you've described yourself as a feminist as an, and a greenie. Um, yeah. <laughs> in terms of Becoming a becoming a feminist, if you like, like you know, growing up as a woman, were you aware of like some of the barriers that you had to face, and thought, do you know what, I'm going to do something about this. Was that a theme, like as a young woman? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, and I particularly remember any great feminist awakening. I think that certainly my mum, my aunt. Uh, my grandmother have all just always been very, very outspoken. There are a lot of women in my family. So it was always kind of discussed that you know, women could do anything that they wanted to and um, that we should always strive for that. So I never felt that there were you know, any barriers placed on me from my home. We were all very, very encouraged to get out there and, and do whatever we wanted. And did you visit yourself living on the other side of the world? So, because whereabouts did you grow up in the UK? At Norwich. So, East Anglia. Yeah, right. East Anglia. Quite os- isolated part of Britain, actually, yep. from, you know, certainly from London. Definitely. And I grew up in the middle of nowhere, in the countryside, in the middle of the countryside, the kind of place that there's one bus a fortnight that can take you into Norwich and it leaves on one Wednesday and then comes back the following Wednesday. So... I think that I was always very keen to get out of the countryside and you know head to a bigger city and explore the world. But no, I never thought I would end up living in New Zealand. Could you be watching a lot of neighbours and <laughs> thought, do you know what, Australia is where I want to be? <laughs> <laughs> I did watch neighbours growing up. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a British person that didn't. <laughs> um, I found myself living in Australia I think for a year or so in my mid twenties and I really enjoyed my time there, but I I didn't want to live there nonstop. And I had never been to New Zealand before we ended up moving here. And my husband and I were living in London and it was, he was working in finance and it was the middle of the global financial crisis. And we were just trying to leave London and look for other jobs somewhere else in the country. You know, we thought maybe Bristol could be a good opportunity or another, you know, another city, but perhaps not as big as uh, London. And I was working for the British Red Cross and a job came up at New Zealand Red Cross. And I can remember said to Ed, what about, what about Wellington? And he said, sounds interesting. And neither of us had been here before, but we did a thought, let's see how this one plays out. And within six months, we found ourselves getting off a plane in Wellington. So it was one of those, I think, fortuitous moments in life. Yeah. And how did you find, was that a difficult transition? No, I don't think so. And I think we fell in love with Wellington 
within a couple of weeks, we knew quite quickly that if we were able to stay here, we would have liked we would like to stay for, here for for as long as possible. I think we initially came out with the view that we'd just do a couple of years, but within nine months we had a dog, and within a year we had a house. And then within a year and a half, our first child was born here. So I think at that point, our parents and relatives probably guessed that we weren't coming back. <laughs> mm. And is that the, the sort of the tough bit, that the fact that you live 12,000 miles from that family? That's the, the only thing almost that is tough about it for you now? Or Yeah, I think so. We miss our families enormously. We try to you know, go back every year, every other year. And they come and visit us, and uh, you know we obviously make good use of you know WhatsApp calls every single weekend, so that we do feel that we're in touch. And you know during COVID was quite tough when we could you know for everybody obviously for multiple reasons and not being able to see them. And we're lucky; we've got a really good network of incredible friends here. So um, whilst we don't have our family networks we do feel that we are part, very much part of our community and get the support that we need from our friends. And professionally, so you're at New Zealand Red Cross having transferred and you're, you're there seven years. Yeah. Did you always feel like you fitted with fundraising? Like did fundraising always make sense or were you looking forward to the future and thinking, I'm going to transition out of this? Like, were you a good fundraiser? Uh, I, I hope so. Um yeah, I, I really liked working in fundraising. And then when I was at New Zealand Red Cross, I looked after marketing and comms as well. So it was nice to have that breadth. Um, I think fundraising is a really hard job. I think that often, you know, not all organisations, of course, but in many organisations, they aren't as valued as much as they should be. And it is hard work trying to, you know, raise as much money as possible for an organization that you you know that you love and I loved working for the British Red Cross and New Zealand Red Cross it's been a, a big part of my life I, I, you know over over 10 years in total but I think there was a, I think I always knew that at some point I'd want to do something different but I didn't necessarily know what that would look like I did leadership New Zealand in 2018 and that I think really got me thinking that there needed to be something else out there that I could use my skills for. And I think when I had been with Red Cross for over 10 years, I thought, okay, I've got to leave. Even though I loved it very much, I didn't want to be there forever. So I resigned with the hope that something interesting would come along. And it did. Yeah, yeah. It was very (laughs) fortuitous. There was Creative New Zealand where I think had advertised for a role and hadn't been able to fill it. And I knew someone that was working there in their in our HR department that was trying to, that was helping them do the recruitment. And I think they heard that I was looking and um, approached me to see if I would like to do a contract role there, uh, which was, and I said, yes, of course. And it was, it was incredible. It was you know, a very different environment for me going to a crown entity and my first job of course of the other side of the fence being in the in the funder position which was a really fascinating kind of introduction to the funding world yeah and what was the sort of main was there a main theme running through creative new zealand at that point was it a focus much more on 
diversity and uh, in terms of indigenous and, and Maori creative outlets? Was that starting to happen then? Yeah, potentially. I think that that's probably those kind of discussions happen in line with a certain strategic cycle. I was only there for nine months and so they were already you know just implementing the strategy they had in time and one of my responsibilities was around capacity building for their clients so yeah it was a real a real privilege to be able to work with so many amazing arts organizations and I had not really worked in the arts before either so that was a real joy and at the same time, you put yourself on the board of Fins, which is the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of to keep connected and to pass on some of your skills and, and understanding of, fun- of fundraising. Yeah. I mean, Fins at the time was going through a bit of a challenging time. And I had been on the board for a year or two. And they had, I think Fins had posted a deficit for two years. And so there were some very hard conversations to be had about the future of Fins. I think it's very challenging if you're one of those membership or small membership organisations. And so myself and Shane Chisholm, um, said we would co-chair. We didn't. Neither of us wanted to do it by ourselves, and to try and steer the organisation through through that quite challenging time. So it was, yeah, it was a very interesting and challenging process to go through. I think with Fins to, you know, restructure and develop a new strategy that would mean it would be financially sustainable, and recruit the amazing Michelle Berryman at the time. That would have been about four, four and a half, five years ago. Yeah, because it's been through significant challenges, hasn't it? So yeah. it's definitely an industry of you know where you've got software providers or other corporates who see absolutely want access to fundraisers <laughs> uh, or to charities, and so they they you know they'll provide revenue, but it's been you know having to wash its own face, having to fund its own existence. I think it's significantly challenging for any member based yeah. organisation. Yeah, and well, I guess also challenging is that because I was a former member of Fins, you know, you'd yes. turn up at events at lunchtime and you'd digest content and you'd learn, but so much has gone online. So yeah. How we value that learning has changed. So that's probably another challenge for Fundraising New Zealand or any type of body. Yeah, I think so. And any industry that has one of their main income generators has been through events. I think it's been enormously challenging. I, I, I think people are, you know, I think all those organisations... Everyone's getting the hang of Zoom events, so they seem to be lesser, you know, much lesser foreign concept. But yeah, tough times. So in 2019, you, you got the opportunity to run and be the chief executive of a community foundation local to you in Wellington called Nekau. How did that opportunity come about? Not sure where I first saw it. I think, I mean, I think they advertised quite widely, and I was already aware of the community foundation movement and because of my time at Creative New Zealand, had been looking for another opportunity to move more into the philanthropic space. And I knew that a community foundation was probably the perfect place to do that because they are actively fundraising as well as being a funder. And I can remember when I saw, when I first found out about it and I was so excited and so I, you know, I read through the job description and I thought that I might, I might have a chance, but I'd never been an executive director or CEO before. So I, you know, I knew that that was going to be 
a significant opportunity, but um, you know, it's always tough when you're trying to make those big jumps up in your career. So I know I put everything into, you know, trying to write the, you know, the perfect cover letter and research for the board and do as much of my homework as I could possibly do to give myself the best chance. Yeah, it was probably at that moment, the job that I had wanted more than any other job because I knew that it was so unique and it's you know it's hard to make the switch and move into the the world of philanthropy and I knew that this would be it could be the perfect opportunity and was it challenging to get that job like what the board in terms of impressing them because it's a sizable organization they've got a significant endowment which they give away the interest from from the Boron uh, foundation haven't they you that's stewards of that money do you remember like the day of the interview and um it was being relatively traumatic i do i had to do a presentation i had to do it twice actually because it got down to they couldn't decide between me and another candidate and the first time it went quite well i no, i came out of the first interview which i had done in front of i think about six or seven board members and they had gone quite well you know I, I didn't come out kicking myself that I had should have answered certain questions differently and they invited me back to do the same presentation to the whole of the board and that day it was a, a march a wet wet windy Wellington day and I got into town really early but it was pouring with rain to such an extent that you know there were just surface flooding everywhere and I you know I could barely cross the street without there being you know half a foot of water and I managed I got to the interview and I was absolutely soaked even though I had a raincoat on and an umbrella it was one of those Wellington days traffic had all you know ground to a standstill and so I, I walked in and I was literally my trousers were I had sort of gray trousers on and they looked black because I was so wet and I can remember just sitting in in one of the little meeting rooms off the side up in uh, Jackson Stone's offices and uh, thinking oh god this is not this is not an auspicious start is it <laughs> and one of the board members popped her head around the door and said and to, to check in with me and said look you'll be fine just do what you did last time you'll be all right and I went in and I think they must have all felt quite sorry for me because I did look like a drowned rat. So they were particularly friendly and welcoming. And clearly it went quite well. And uh, I was so excited that I had got the job when they told me. I was beyond yeah, excited. When you really want something. And do you suffer nerves? Do you have self-doubt? Yeah, definitely. And you know, I don't find interviews generally the easiest because I am always quite nervous, especially if, you know, if it's a job I really, really want, which is, you know, frustrating because I've had inter interviews for jobs that, you know, they haven't been my dream job and the interviews have been much better <laughs> because I've been more relaxed than the ones I've really wanted. But it was, yeah, on that occasion, it, you know, everything aligned. Because you appear really driven and your career would say that, like you keep striving to go one better or to do something interesting. Do you have to fight some of that self-doubt or some of the nerves? Like, where does where do you think that comes from when you do feel like that? I do have to fight it. You know, I think that, uh, you know, everyone has an element of, you know, imposter syndrome. You know, I am quite driven. You know, I like to make sure that I, you know, do the, can do the, you know, the best possible job. And, you know, I think with Nico Foundation, 
I knew that I had the right experience. So I knew I had the kind of the mixture if they could just you know, give me a kind of chance. And I also know I remember them asking me in my interview, one person said, how long, if you got the job, how long do you think you would be here for? And I responded by saying probably about three years, you know, maybe three and a half, four years. And one one board member looked horrified. <laughs> And um, one board member nodded and said, that sounds about right. And I said, look, if I, you know, if I achieve everything you want me to achieve in this time frame, in this kind of three-year strategic cycle, then it will be time for somebody else to come in and take the reins. And I think I'm, you know, I'm very conscious about that, not you know, overstaying your welcome and knowing when it, is a, when it is the right time to leave. That's quite brave, though. Well, I think I, you know, I put my heart and soul into the jobs that I do. So, you know, I think one lesson from, you know, for me is not becoming, you know, burned out throughout that process and trying to manage that better so that I can, you know, pace myself a little mm. bit better. But it's really levelling with the board, isn't it? Saying, I'll do this, I'm fully committed, but you're, and you'll have me for three years. You really, going into that, you really, really wanted this job, like you really want success. So, taking a bit of a risk and saying this, because they, they might say, actually, we want some for five years. Yeah, you know, good to have a you know, an upfront relationship with your board, though, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and so complex community foundations, incredibly complex. I think that's probably the word that sticks out the most. And you said before, you're both, yeah. you wear two hats, you know, you're a funder, you know, you're trying to bring in money as well in different forms. Yeah, how'd you find it? It was an amazing experience. It was hard work, really, really hard work. And I think, you know, all community foundations, when they are, and I'm sure this goes for, I guess, all organisations, but when they're community foundations, they are still quite small. And, you know, it's really hard to be financially sustainable um, when you're in that kind of startup phase. And there's a real mixture across the country. There's quite a few community foundations that receive funding from their councils, which allows them to focus on I know on growth and building relationships within the community, and then there's others that don't. Nico Foundation didn't, so you know a lot of our focus was around making the organisation financially sustainable through the bequest model and trust transfers as well. But it was hard work, and I think that the team achieved a great deal in those three years. You know, a lot had changed, but I certainly loved my time there. It's a, it's a really incredible organisation. I think what community foundations do and what they offer people is really special. Yeah, and it's a growing movement in, in New Zealand. And, then, you know, although the sort of 17 community foundations are relatively small, like collectively together they have, you know, over 200 million in, endowed, which is big in terms of New Zealand. You've had now quite a diverse set of experiences career-wise. What are some of the things that you live by? Like, what have you... Something that you do every week that kind of is your North Star or grounds you or how you operate? I think I'm generally quite an optimistic, positive person. And so I think for me, with my team, I certainly try to bring that to work. And then to enable me to do that, it's very important to look after, you know, look after my own well-being as well. And I live currently in the in a beautiful Eastbourne on the on the harbour of um, Wellington, in between the nestled in between the hills and the sea. So you know, I try and spend as much time as I can, you know, 
going for a bush walk or doing yoga so that I can you know, look after myself so that I can be in a good space to you know, look after the other people that I work with as well. Do you have sort of like a leadership approach or like is there a way that you, you've just hired, hired a new team, you know, you're really excited about the team that you've hired, there's real enthusiasm the way you talk about them. Do you approach leadership in a certain way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I'm trying to be a, you know, very much a kind of collaborative leader. You know, I've certainly got a team of, you know, very, very capable individuals. And for me, it's very much about, you know, supporting them, working with them to ensure that they can thrive and making sure that they have everything that they need. You know, I certainly try to lead by example and creates the kind of environment where, you know, people have an opportunity to learn and develop and you know, be continually kind of, you know, excited and inspired by the work that we do. And certainly, I think when you're working for a foundation, you've already got all of the ingredients there. It's just, you know, making sure that you um, bring them out. And I think one of the things that no one tells you about work is it's actually sometimes it's dealing with people that you perceive to be difficult. So <laughs> that don't necessarily share your your perspective, your way of, of thinking or your approach or you know, like that, that's certainly the something I've come across. What is your approach to dealing with, you know, difficult people or people that don't necessarily have that same vision as you? I really enjoy being, you know, challenged and listening to other people's perspectives. Someone used the phrase the other day that they could see, you know, four sides to a, every triangle. <laughs> and I thought that was quite a nice way of summing it up. I, I like to listen to and that probably comes from my kind of collaborative approach. I like to listen to other people's differences of opinion, you know, different opinions. Um, and I think that that actually makes for a stronger team. You know, Claire Foundation is very much a values-driven organisation. You know, we you know, treat each other with kindness because that's one of our values. You know, we always try to be brave in how we fund. Brave is another one. And I think that if the organisation's culture is created in a way where everybody understands those core values and you create a safe space where learning and difference of opinions and diversity is really valued then I think you can you know you can set the tone and set the space so that you can have those you know those more challenging conversations and I think that that's quite important when we were recruiting and interviewing people we worked really hard to kind of consciously think about any unconscious bias that we might have and to make sure that 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 wasn't you know informing the people that we were choosing yeah i really like that and in terms of looking to the future what would you hope for the clear foundation because you have you have really an opportunity sort of to create it in your shadow or to bring your whole self to it and it could be you know, reflective of you. And I think that's a great thing about a startup foundation, if you like. But yeah, what's your aspirations? Well, I think if we've got eight years left, I think the, I mean, the first thing is, you know, creating a really strong team and a really strong culture for them so that we are the kind of organization that can do Anna, our founder, really proud and be brave in what we fund so that we are, you know, shifting the dial on a couple of those, you know, key issues within our strategic focus areas and trying to create extraordinary change. I mean, we are in the process now of doing that, 
you know, strategic thinking and that planning and bringing the new team on board into the way that Clare Foundation works and looking to kind of articulate that a little bit more in the new year. But, you know, this is probably the you know, first job I've had where I would, I mean, I would love to stay for the whole eight years. And I've got no intention of going anywhere. It's a you know, real privilege to be here. And so I want us to be able to, in eight years time, look back and be able to be really proud of what we've achieved, but have some, you know, really quite significant milestones along the way where we we know that even though, you know, Clare Foundation might not exist in the way it does now in 10 years time, what it has been able to achieve will last for generations to come. And I think that that's the kind of challenge that we have set ourselves. And I guess because Anna is, is an investor, is also she's a um, social entrepreneur and an investor. She's alongside this, she runs an investment firm, doesn't she? Even Capital. And yes. I guess that for you, in terms of the eight years, like it just kind of leaves the door open to this could go in any direction, right? Yeah, it's a real privilege as well having Even Capital, who are a, a venture capital firm that invest only in women-led businesses because there is a there is a gap there as well in the amount of investment that they can attract. We're in a really privileged position there when it comes to impact investing because you know we are lucky enough to have a VC firm with talented people who can guide us through that process as well about how you would invest in an organization and and you know structure that deal I think is you know really fortunate there are you know a number of foundations that have people working there who come from more of a kind of investment background which clearly I don't um, but we're very lucky to have even capital there alongside us because it means that we can look at those impact investments. And we've already made a number of investments in that space, quite a few in the in, in the waste reduction space, as well as some of the more you know, traditional kind of impact investments, such as community finance, which is in investing in community housing through Salvation Army. But that, I think, means that we can take quite a holistic approach with all of our investments as well to ensure that they are incredibly responsibly invested and, you know, where possible, are actively doing great things as well, which is yeah, the real beauty of our approach as well. Wonderful. Alice Montague, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.